Thank you, Trudy, and uh, welcome, everybody, and just lovely to see you all today. <clears throat> On the 4th of December, 1977, in the capital city of Begani, in the Central African Republic, the world press witnessed the coronation of His Imperial Majesty Bokasa I. He'd been the president for 11 years of that nation, and then he had a coup d'etat and he declared himself to be the king. On his coronation day, the price tag for his coronation was 135 million New Zealand dollars. At 10 o'clock, the blare of trumpets and the roll of drums announced the arrival of His Majesty. The procession began with eight of Bokassa's 29 children parading down the royal carpets to their seats. They were followed by the heir to the throne, Jean Badel Bokassa II, dressed in a white admiral's uniform with gold braid. I think he was only about 12. He was seated on a red pillow next to the throne. Then Catherine followed. He was the favorite of his nine wives, wearing a $3.5 million gown made by Lavanne of Paris. Then the emperor arrived in a gold-eagled imperial coach drawn by six Anglo-Saxon stallions. He wore a robe decorated with 785,000 pearls and gold embroidery. On his brow, he wore a gold crown of laurel wreaths, rather like when Napoleon wore a laurel wreath before he announced himself as emperor. Laurel wreaths were a symbol of the favor of the gods. As the sacred march came to an end, Bokassa himself seated himself on an $11.5 million eagle throne. He took the laurel leaf off his head, and as Napoleon had done only 173 years before, he took his $11 million crown, topped with 80-carat diamonds, and placed it on his own head. Following the coronation there was a banquet for 400 invited guests. It was, there was a pyrotechnic, a firework display designed by a French designer, and after that there was a pop concert and he'd brought in some dancing girls from Vietnam for the occasion. The party ended at 2.30 a.m. in the morning. Now, Bacassa's reign was not as inspiring and imposing as his coronation. Because two years later, while he was out of the country, the French organized a coup d'etat. And it saw the abolition of a horrendous monarchy, which resulted in a lot of pain and misery for a lot of people, um, and the reestablishment of an elected republic. Sadly, it was too late, for example, for 200 schoolchildren who complained about the cost of their uniforms who had been put to death by the king for complaining. Bacassa himself was tried for cannibalism and murder. He was imprisoned in solitary confinement until 1993 
and he died in 1996. Now, this is a ridiculous story, isn't it? It's almost comical if it hadn't been for all those who'd suffered so greatly under his reign. But at the same time, absurd as it is, it's pretty accurate portrayal of the longings and the methodology of mankind if left to pursue their own pride and exaltation. If they're left to pursue life without God at the centre. Now, what a contrast that was to the story we heard today about what we call Palm Sunday, the entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. It was Passover time. It was a time of great excitement. You know, the the Jews, the the Israelites, they had three main celebrations of the year. And the Passover was an astoundingly exciting time because it remembered the time of liberation uh, from the Egyptians. And this was particularly an important day. Lazarus had just been raised from the dead on the edge of the city about four or five days before. And people were so excited because they'd followed Jesus. We read that they were praising God with loud voices for all the great things that they'd seen Jesus do. And a little later, we hear at the end of that reading that uh, Trudy brought to us today, people went to the temple. They didn't want to miss a word of his teaching. However, Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders were absolutely beside themselves. They had a hit list of people they wanted to get rid of. Lazarus was on that list and Jesus Christ was on the top of that list. A number of times in the Gospels, they were seeking a way to kill Jesus to get rid of him, because he was a great threat to their position, and in their eyes, he was a false messiah, a false prophet. In John's account, we hear the jealousy and the outrage, and they said, this is what they said, they said, the whole world is going after him. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that came true? And this of all days, with the crowd descending upon Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, there was even more excitement as the people were anticipating the coronation of Jesus. They were expecting Jesus to take his Messiah's position. That's what they were expecting. Now, as the day unfolded, As Bocassa had organized his own coronation, Jesus actually organized his own coronation too. He actually orchestrated it from prophecy. In Jeremiah 9.9, there is a prophecy about the king, the Messiah, coming into the city to crown himself as king. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew that the people were looking for the coming Messiah. It was the hope of Israel. But of course, he also knew what was ahead of him, what his messiahship would cost him. Because he knew the prophecies also in Isaiah of the suffering servant who would 
bear our transgressions and would die. He knew that. So knowing this messianic prophecy of Zechariah, Jesus sent two of his disciples to go to a little village called Bethage. And Sue and I have been there, and it's just a little village on the end of the uh, Mount of Olives next to Bethany. And he sent his disciples there, and I think he'd prearranged it. He'd probably said to somebody that he knew in that village, look, I'm going to require a donkey. Could you please um, let, one, let me have one? My disciples will come and get it. And so he sent his disciples off, and they got this donkey, and they brought it back to him. The disciples set Jesus on the donkey. They laid their cloaks in front of him, and he descended towards Jerusalem on that donkey. People cried out, God bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God. Hosanna to the son of David, they cried. But we also hear the Pharisees telling Jesus to stop the people proclaiming him as king. And Jesus replies, even if they keep quiet, the very stones themselves would shout. I don't know if you recall that little reading we had about the coronation of Solomon and how at the end of the coronation of Solomon, it actually says, all the people have followed Solomon into Jerusalem, playing flutes and shouting for joy. The celebration was so joyous and noisy that the earth shook with the sound. One thing to note here, up until the time of Solomon, kings in Israel would use colts or donkeys for their preferred mode of transport. Later on, the kings would then use horses as they were imbibed more and more the culture, if you like, of the surrounding nations, places like Babylon, which would have horses because they're powerful. Now, Jesus wasn't necessarily just choosing a donkey because it was a humble form of transport, but because of its prophetic significance. Jesus honoured prophecy, and he was orchestrating, fulfilling this prophecy himself. He wanted to honour his father. He wanted to thrill the people who would welcome him. It's interesting that Alistair Roberts wrote this about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He said this, he said, The donkey or mule, the king's steed, is associated with peaceful rule and service, while the horse was an animal of war. In giving these signs and in traveling into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus enacts the establishment of a new kingdom. The rule of God is brought near, not with the snorting and stamping of royal stallions or the thunderous rumbling of tanks, but in a lowly Messiah born on the back of a humble cult. The joyful promises and songs of the prophets before him, the fullness of God's blessing in his train. Sadly, the crowd and even his own disciples missed the point. And we can easily miss the point too. They thought the coming Messiah would come and forcibly remove the Romans from Israel and establish peace as previous kings had done with a sword. 
That's probably why they were swayed a week later to shout, crucify him, crucify him, because they weren't fulfilling what they were expecting. But the disciples weren't even, they weren't even any better. What happened when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and a crowd came to him? Peter pulled out a sword. He was going to kill them. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's not the way of the kingdom. The sword is not the way. James and John, what did they say to Jesus? Well, they said to each other, I wonder if we could sit uh, next to Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. Can one of us sit on the left and one of us sit on the right? And even Judas, who himself had done kingdom ministry, who had laid hands on the sick and seen them get well, he stole money and he gave it to the authorities so he could sell Jesus out. Violence, pride, greed, these are all characteristics of the kingdoms of the world that Jesus came to overturn. And we need to ask ourselves, what is in us that needs to be overturned? The rest of the Palm Sunday account that we heard today, we see two passionate actions of Jesus. The first one, we see the tears of Jesus. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because the people did not recognize the day of their visitation. For three years, Jesus had demonstrated the kingdom of God by his powerful and authoritative teaching and his preaching, by his actions of compassionate healing, setting lepers free so they could mix with society, and his amazing grace at forgiving people who had mucked up. But with this, they missed the point. And as I thought about it, it struck me how much do we weep and agonize over our own friends and families and neighbors who don't know why, who Jesus is and why he came? Do we weep as Jesus weeps? I'm challenged by the amazing story of Monica in the fourth century um, who over many, many years uh, prayed uh, for her recalcitrant son, a man who became St. Augustine. Um, later, when he entered the kingdom of God on April the 24th in 386, he wrote in his book called The Confessions about his mother. And this is what he said about his mother. He said, nearly nine years passed in which I wallowed in the mud and on that deep pit and in the darkness of falsehood, striving often to rise, but being all the more heavily dashed down but all that time, this chaste, pious, and sober widow did not cease to bring my case before you, O God. In all the hours of a supplication, her prayers entered your presence until you finally pierced my heart with your love. You know, when Augustine finally surrendered his life and got baptized, his mother said to him this, there was only one reason and one reason only why I wished to remain a little longer in this life. It was to see you become a Christian. It was to see the kingdom of God come upon you. She died a few days after his baptism. 
faithful, compassionate, praying lady who just desired to see her master like Jesus looking over that city, how Jesus desired to see the people recognize the day of their visitation. How earnest are we in our prayers for those who we know are lost? And the second thing is, the second thing is his righteous anger. You know, it says, be angry, but don't let your anger lead you into sin. He was angry against a faith that had not fulfilled its true purpose. A faith that had turned into a meaningless commercialized religion. The temple, the place of God's presence, the way into God's presence, the place of sacrifice for sins, the place of prayer and worship become a place that allowed commercial enterprise and greed that was also excluding people from God's presence. You know, some of the religious leaders, Annas was one case in point, made a lot of money out of the temple. The place where Jesus overturned the money tables was in the forecourts where the Gentiles could go. It was the only place that the Gentiles could actually gather anywhere near the temple. Now, Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. God loved the world that he wanted the faith of Israel to become the faith of the whole world. And Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. But Israel had failed. They hadn't fulfilled their calling. And more seriously, they did not recognize the day when their Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah, was arriving. Now, with the coming of Jesus Christ, he is the new temple. He is the locus of God's presence. Jesus is the only access to God. He is the one and only free atoning sacrifice for our sins. We don't have to perform great duties to try and please God. We just have to be obedient. He was the one sacrifice for everyone. He's the one who sets people free from slavery and fills people with life and joy and peace. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Hosanna to the king. Hosanna to Jesus. He is the king. You know, when we welcome Jesus as king into our lives... He comes into our lives to set things right. And he starts with us. He challenges all our motives and all our attitudes. He makes us confront the evil. He makes us confront the lack of kingdom desire in our own hearts. We need to be confronted by that. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple in which the Spirit lives. And we need to enthrone Jesus in our hearts completely. Everything else needs to come off the throne. 
When Jesus rode in on that peaceable donkey, I don't know if you know the story at all of the Trojan horse. The Greeks were trying to capture Troy, and they couldn't capture Troy. So they packed up, but they built this horse, and the idea of the horse was that they would empty it out. They'd send it into the city with a few warriors inside it. And, of course, the Trojans welcomed the horse. They thought it was fantastic. It was a sign of peace. And they saw the Greeks disappearing off in their ships. And at night time, the horse opened up. And the Greek soldiers came down. And they opened the gates of the city. And the Greek soldiers rushed in and captured the city. The ultimate aim of the Trojan horse was the unconditional surrender of the people of the city. And when Jesus comes into our lives, he's wanting an unconditional surrender. The unconditional surrender of our hearts, of our lives, to the only one who can bring peace and meaning and purpose in life.